where investment dollars meet insanity. This is The Really Really. What is The Really Really to you, Matt? I think what's unique about what The Really Really is is being able to take two completely different perspectives on a certain topic, subject, um, and link the, and merge them together to figure out and sort of identify the nuance. And I think, you know, listen to where the new, the really, really is about listening for as much of where you're not right as where you are. Right. Right. It's getting into, it's getting into the real stuff. It's getting into the real stuff. And I think for us, um, the reason why it was excited to do this with you is because we both represent almost opposite viewpoints on almost everything. And I think that listening to a bunch of podcasts and people speaking is that usually it's kind of aimed with a with a goal of you know self-grandizing or selling something. And I think in a lot of podcasts and things like that, we miss the actual really, really of what we should be talking about. Selling ideas, not necessarily exploring them. Right. Especially as it applies to, you know, company building. Yeah. Can, can you think of a podcast? I, I, was trying to, I was trying to think of one. Can you think of one business podcast, business-oriented podcast? Can you think of one that just really gets down to it and like is not at least 50% self-aggrandizement, right? No. I mean, I, I, no, I don't think I can. And I think, well, this is going to have self-aggrandizing in it. Sure. I think as we kind of talk about each other and why we are the we're unique two people to to kind of debate some of these things and talk about these things is that um there's going to be some self-grandizing in it. Grandizing? Self-aggrandizing. Self-aggrandizing. I looked it up. Yeah, I looked it up before I wrote it down. Is that how you say it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, you are I think self-described you are prone <laughs> to uh self-grandizing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean for me it's you know I'm scrappy, right? You are. I like to I like to do as much as I can with what I have, you know, and uh, especially starting out for me in entrepreneurship, that wasn't much. And so, you know, you hear sort of the fable advice of fake it till you make it. And there's truth to that, but that pendulum squ- swings the other way too, Yeah. you know? And, and sometimes I, sometimes I'll be in meetings or I'll be kind of like just swinging above my, my weight class. And I'm just like, <laughs> totally. stop it. Just stop it. Slow down, you know, slow down, slow it down. Right. So, I mean, you know, I've been trying to, I've just, I've been trying to just be like completely genuine with people to the extent that somebody so shut in as I yeah, <laughs> can right. be, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's something that I have to work on and definitely something that especially like if we're actually going to like amplify our voices and like send that out to people yep. it's something i'm going to have to look out for we there are things for you to look out for too i'm conflict oriented conflict oriented <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah that's a uh, it has served me uh not well in a lot of situations mm-hmm. so this is really this is more than anything i, w- I just want to continue to learn yeah i feel like i've always been a student of building companies and i don't ever want to stop Right. I also think that I do a good job of just observations and from kind of an outsider perspective coming into Boise, I think that I will represent an opinion of a lot of people that are are coming in right now. Right. And we we talked a little bit about like the differences between yours and my perspectives. Like you're a little bit left-leaning, I'm a little bit right-leaning. I mean, I think an advantage of that or a key piece of that for us is that we're both like solution oriented like we're not we're not tribalists we're not like just going to like adopt a mindset just because people who have adjacent beliefs also are doing that you're right leaning 
Uh, sorry, I'm left. I was gonna say, whoa! I did this wrong. I've already won. We've. <laughs> I've already gotten you to my side. <laughs> well, your ultimate goal revealed. Yep, that was it. That was it. Yep. That was it. Now I think what I what I what I have not heard enough of. I think in a lot of aspects of life, is two different viewpoints trying to figure out where the other person is is wrong and listening for growth and how to evolve. And I think that the dynamic between you and I represents something interesting in building companies because, you know, you are, you are going to come at it from a pretty big, you know, founder centric view of, of living the founder life. And, you know, I've got, I've got a founder view, but it's sort of morphed into more of an investment banker view. And I think both are completely necessary. Right. And I don't know many people that have them both. Right. And you're, and you're not an investment banker, but right. Like you've, you formerly were a fund manager and you've like delved into that world. And, and in many ways you understand and empathize with investors and the investment community and the different theses and, and yeah. different ideas and perspectives in that community in a way that, that, you know, would, would take a lifetime for me to pick up on. Yeah. That's the part that I decided I wanted to be really good at. Yeah. Um, when I was helping build companies in New York city, what I realized was no matter what the pedigree of the founding team was, and I was on some really unique, really, uh, to someone living in Boise, uh, or a smaller market, you would look at some of these pedigrees and say, wow, those people must have no problem getting funded. And the reality was of that was that was not true. I think that every, you know, all of our, every founder should have a little bit more uh, of a, of a skill set of a repertoire of some dialogue of being able to think about the company that they're building like the investor they actually are. Um, they're investing tons of time. They're putting a bunch of risk into it. It doesn't, you know, their sweat equity means something. But I'm not always sure that that's how founders view that sweat equity, as it is a you know as an instrument of investment. Yeah, for for me, this project, the really, really, this is this is really, really about finding that nuance, right? right. Finding finding the finding the key details that like differentiate something from being useful to not useful. Sure, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. And, right. And there's a lot of it in this industry. There's a lot right? of noise. There's yeah. There's I mean, there's a limit. We're building these organizations we're building organisms that are meant to like survive in the grand fabric of the global market yeah. right and in no way can any one person know everything that needs to be done in order to make that happen right right yep and so like finding the clues finding the hints towards like what's the right path for me given my stance my background the people i know the place where i'm at that's the nuance that i really want to draw out in the really really Another thing, you know, we, we talked about me being left leaning and you left being leaning. a little bit right leaning. Right. I got it right that time. You do. I got it left that time. You got it. <laughs> but uh, I think I think something that you and I have in common is that we're both very bullshit adverse. Yes. Like, and and I, I think I kind of sense this in you, even though we haven't necessarily talked about this part of it. But when I hear when I hear an echo chamber, like when I notice that I'm like in a group or like listening to media that seems to just be built to like reaffirm existing beliefs and biases and and like you know give comfort to those beliefs yeah i just instantly like cannot stand it and i try to find like what's wrong with that which you know is good in some situations and bad in others yeah we're both very much not joiners of things right we don't join things well yeah yeah you know i honestly i i, I i'm a little <sighs> 
I don't know. I would I wouldn't break myself down as like a not like because I I want to be a team player. Sure. You know. Yeah. Like I want to I want to get into a team. I want to be productive, and like if that means I'm wearing the CEO hat or the janitor hat, like if that's the best contribution that I can give, then like I want to be there and I want to humble myself to that. Right. You know my inclination to self-aggrandizement aside <laughs> but maybe i'm not a good joiner of things maybe you're not <laughs> maybe a good that's joiner. the better way to say maybe, it. <laughs> maybe that's a better way to say it um no you're totally right and I, but again back to i think what is the most I, th- I just think is the most interesting topic right now um, and i think you said it actually really well as we were talking about this earlier and that is you know looking at the city of boise or the ecosystem here as a startup in itself. Right. Looking at that through a really, really lens. Really, really lens. And realizing that the the path forward most likely is going to come in sort of the gray, messy middle. Coming in, you know, I've been now here about a year and a half, and what I've noticed is like I think a lot of kind of ecosystems, it's very clicky. And so there's a narrative going on, I think, that you're going to represent very well in sort of the founder community of, you know, and technically the founder community constantly says there's not enough money. The investment community, and I don't think this one's by and large any different, is that is there's not enough investable good companies. And I feel like just hearing some of the frustration that I've seen on LinkedIn and things locally, that those two might be reaching a portion where it's time to talk about the really, really, the middle of it. We have frustrated founders and fatigued investors. So how are we going to navigate through that? Right. And I mean, fundamentally, entrepreneurship is wrought with paradox, right? right? Top to bottom, like you need money, you need progress. And like, it takes one to get the other, right? And so entrepreneurs and and certainly like investors who were previously entrepreneurs, like, I think understand the concept of like, you know, rubbing two pennies together to make a dollar and then like trying to leverage that into something bigger. But, you know, and that's what I want to explore, like that paradox. So what perceptions in the community do you think are barriers to people understanding the other side of the table what's what's preventing founders from understanding what they need to get investment and what's preventing investors from understand or from from anything yeah no i think the side i'll always talk about uh, is that i personally believe that a lack of investment in a community is a founder problem not necessarily an investor problem but i would say what is really interesting about the whole dynamic is that a lot of times when you know a founder is always selling something right and so they're going through talking with investors selling constantly right and likewise the investor is sitting there and if they don't you know they're they're offering some advice but they're not they don't offer necessarily a check and i feel like the the learning part of that stops and turns into frustration so what i guess what i'm saying is there hasn't i haven't found a vehicle locally here yet where you can have really good, meaningful dialogue between a founder and investor, somebody or that's somebody that's knowledgeable about the investment side of it, that is sort of here to educate people. Have you know? I don't. I haven't seen it. I'm not saying that it doesn't go on, but it, it was. It's not obvious to me that it's there. Right, and you know, maybe the clicky nature of Boise that that you described contributes to that. I will say, you know, I've I've I'm a, a Boise area native and i'll say it's gotten less clicky right yeah like having trailhead having boise startup week having having these events and like these very clear 
Uh, I mean, social media helps as well, yeah, right. right? It's not all like backroom conversations in, in the back of Hannafin's or anything, but right. I, I think I think it has gotten more centralized and information has, has been able to distribute a lot better. But, you know, I, I could still say, like, I agree, I don't know of a vehicle to do what you described just then. And, you know, and if it exists, then it might exist within a click that I haven't heard of. Yeah, and I think that, you know, the trailhead part of it, and, and I think, not just in Boise, but a lot of kind of uh, cities of roughly this size. I, I imagine and kind of know in some ways that this going this is kind of going on in every one of them in, to some extent. And I think as you look at an organization like the Trailhead or something that is a public-private partnership, it sort of prohibits kind of what you can do and what you can't do through it. It doesn't work when with the FINRA and the SEC, uh, different um, sort of the regulating bodies to have these in-depth pitching securities conversations. It doesn't it doesn't behoove really the uh, organization like the Trailhead. So it felt like, you know, this this is a medium where we can at least talk about all this stuff. I feel like when I when we just don't what I feel like was missing in Boise, and I think it's missing in everywhere at the stage of kind of early seed and growth stage opportunities is we're really really good at articulating what the company is what its functions are and what it does. I think that we're very, everyone has gotten to be pretty good in putting out five-year projections and sort of the cookie cutter roadmap that is we've taught people to be a pitch deck. What I haven't seen often enough is a founder be very quantitative about the opportunity. Right. Really articulating the quantifying how, you know, the exit sort of really, I think in the companies that have done that well, have always gotten funded by and large. Right. Well, maybe, I, you know, maybe that also comes from the stage that we're in, sure. right? Yeah. Like as a community, Boise is a point where like we've developed some of the resources that I talked about or, or you know, that's my perception of it. And uh, a lot of a lot of the media, a lot of the talk, a lot of the founder training that's kind of going into the community um, is oriented around creating pitch decks, sure. getting in front of investors, like, and how to present your concept to investors. Um, but like, is the, is, is the trailhead of Silicon Valley doing something like that? Probably not. Like they're probably talking about like, what do you do when you're in the middle of your series A funding and your user growth like takes off at such a rapid rate that you can't possibly like keep your engineering team up to date on all of the things that are happening. And, you know, and you figure out that you need to do like a major refactor or a pivot, like while you have many active users. Right. Right. Like that. Probably level that level of nuance. <laughs> probably. probably. But I think as we kind of talked about earlier, I think that the, if you want to talk about the kind of, Every, every founder should be able to think like an investor in some way. And that doesn't mean you need an MBA, um, I think. But if you're going to ask people to fund your company, there are some fundamental things I think that, um, that you should know. And I think we talked about just uh, there's broadly perceiving investor money as VC money, I think is pretty dangerous. And I think that's as we kind of looked at the LinkedIn pot stirring that went on here in Boise. Um, I, I think that's part of it that was missing was just this overall education in terms of what does every what do angels investors do? What does an early stage VC fund do? What does revenue based financing do? And really matching um, your particular capital needs of a business to the appropriate entity that, that actually does that part. Right. 
Right. And you're talking about an article that was recently posted on LinkedIn that was critical of the Boise startup scene, largely saying that Boise's growth is attributed to real estate, which in large part it is, yeah. um, but also kind of equating the inability for that person's perspective, for, for that person in their business to acquire the funding and talent that they needed as a deficiency in the community at large when, you know, um, there, there, there's been plenty of controversy about that yeah, and, and right. a lot of back and forth about that just last week. So, And I thought it was awesome that he did it. Um, I, I fundamentally disagreed with everything that he wrote except for I'm glad he did it because mm. it definitely, I think it, it prompts conversation now between, I think if you want to look at it into the, the investors and the, and the founder piece. Right. What would, I guess as a kind of a hard segue, what as a founder, what would you, you know, what vent to me, what you'd like, what you'd vent to an investor without a, if you had an investor friend like you do and me, what would you vent? Like, what are the, what are some of the things that just come to your mind that are frustrating? Right. Well, you know, and I, I think that I have my 30,000 foot view and yeah. then I also have like the, <laughs> the perspective. Well, give me your like, 30,000 foot. We'll get to the just, really, really. Yeah. <laughs> um, so from a 30,000 foot view, like I think the Boise startup scene is growing and it's improving, but we have to, we can't pat ourselves on the back so quickly, right? Like the, my takeaway from that article and the debate that followed is that like we still have more work to do before we can start calling ourselves like a startup hub or God forbid the next Silicon Valley. Right. Right. Like it's, we're in a different market and our market comes with different advantages and drawbacks. Um, from the perspective of an entrepreneur and, you know, I, I, I'll say this from the perspective that I've sort of, you know, my pers perspective on investment of course has changed as I've become more educated about, mm -hmm. about the nature of investment, the nature of, of angel investors and, and venture capitalists. But as I look back, initially, like investors seem like this very scary, very intimidating group of people that you cannot fuck up with yep. or, you know, or your business will not succeed. Like you are not good enough if you cannot convince this group of people to agree that the thing that you've sunk so much time and, and sacrificed so much for is not good enough for them to invest their many, many frivolous dollars in, gotcha. right? That's, and that's like a very primitive perspective on it, well, a very good, outsider yeah. view. Um, but I think that's, I think that that is similar to the viewpoint that a lot of people have when they are a first time founder and they're like starting a business and, and pitching to investors, especially if it's a business. And this is, I think a key distinction between starting a business in Boise and elsewhere. But especially if it's a business that cannot succeed if it does not get investment dollars. Right. Yeah. Now that's an important. That's a definitely an important distinction to make. And I do think that that's by and large the genesis of a lot of frustration on founders. Um, I also think it's how do we, you know how do we go about kind of curing that? I do think that the investor is playing the bank, and I think that's generally the same attitude anyone has about going to the bank. Um, it is this sort of either qualifying you're not good enough or you are good enough. And I think that I don't think there's any way around that. Truthfully, I do think that that's the way it will always be in some ways. But I don't think that's the best approach for a founder to use to go about that process. Well, for me, I think a lot of it, 
you know, I think a lot of what has changed my perspective about investors has been just educating myself on how investors work. Like yep. in, in a lot of cases, I think it's easy to think of them as being, you know, just so wealthy that they wouldn't miss it. Right. Or um, just like so excited about entrepreneurship that they like cannot wait to pour their money into sure. it. And I guess there are versions of either of those things, but... You know, I, I mean, once I once I read some books, talked to some investors, watched some like video courses from Y Combinator, and like, you know, actually went through some degree of of a process of receiving investments to a very limited degree to qualify myself. I, you know, I I got to learn that investors are investors have a different mindset than entrepreneurs, right? Investors are working with different dynamics than entrepreneurs, even though they're sitting on the opposite side of the table, you know, at first and are negotiating a partnership that is almost akin to marriage. Like, yeah. you know, like they will be a partner in your business and they will have certain needs that you need to meet. Like it's, it's not, um, it's there almost no investor is going to cut a check and go. And, and if you're in Boise, then you can pretty much write off that possibility entirely. Yeah, no, it's, um, I think as you, I don't, I don't re directly respond to that other than I do think that a lot of times what founders maybe don't even know by and large is again, if you kind of break down, let's call it the kind of the investment classes, Boise by and large is predominantly angel driven money, right? So what is an angel investor? I think it means something different to almost everybody. To me, what it means is an angel investor is generally the first or second check in to support a founder on their way to building an idea into a business. And they're not just checks. They've got feelings too. They've got feelings. It would, yeah, you're right. They would do have feelings. But I think that that's... Um, so when it's so loosely venture capital, I, I think signals to people uh, in founders that it's this, they're going to make, they need to make a thousand X and there's, there's all these sort of, pre, I don't know the preconceived notions that I don't know that are accurate. Um, I don't think you can just like, loosely apply venture capital across every type of investor. Right. And, and what you're, what you're saying with a thousand X, like angel investors are motivated differently they are. than like actual. They still want to make money. Of course. Yeah. Right? They still want to make money, but I do think that they are inherently about supporting entrepreneurship about backing people that they like that are in companies that are somewhat interesting to the investor. You, like we talked about the other day, you could have a company that has decent metrics, but if I'm an angel investor and I just don't like that, like that's not a reflection on you or the business. It's just, that's not my particular way I want to spend my time or money. Right. Or if it's not, if it's not your field, if it's not like yeah. an industry that you are excited about or yeah, that, that makes sense. I mean, for a lot of this, like understanding motivations, understanding the motivations and like conflicts that investors, whether they're angel investors or venture capitalists, understanding what they're going through and right. like what pressures they're working on for me was the very key to like building empathy with that sort of archetype of a person. And like, under understanding for one like that they're people too and like they're like generally <laughs> yeah, right <laughs> which i mean is like the, they're they going to seem larger than life if you're on a stage with a light on you and like a group of people with name tags sitting in the audience right but that empathy like understanding what they're going through and understanding what motivates them and understanding like like being able to you know of course go through the motions but also like try to build a pathway where you can figure out if you can meet their needs. Yeah. 
you know, like well, absolutely. And I wanted to run it back because I think if I'm if I'm sitting here in the investor shoes, here's to answer your question. Here's what I'm thinking out about by and large during someone's pitch if I haven't met them before. And as you're going through your first three slides or so, I am sitting here. How is this person? You know. Where is the risk in all of this? You know, I know that a founder is going to sell me the most bright, optimistic future of the company possible. So my job as a sort of a diligent investor is to sort of identify where the risk is and where my money's not safe. And I think that the more founders pitch this crazy, we're the Uber of this, somehow the contrarian thing, like I mentioned, the contrarian thing these days in, in talking about opportunities is to sort of be honest about them. And I have seen and been a part of those companies that can articulate the risk. They can talk to an investor as an incoming partner about here's all the good things. Here's all the other things. This is sort of how we solve for those. And this is in the end where my time and you know brilliance in, the, in our team's product plus your money gets us both. And I think if you can't articulate the end of a company, and I, people have debated me on this for a long time then it's not clear to me how you know how much capital to raise over the course of a time. Because you've now, if you said, I'm going to exit my company in three or four years, great, who, to who, how? Um, and that answer, with as much detail as possible, informs how you fund the business moving back, but not just how you fund it, but how you, are t how you allocate capital, how you hire. I mean, I still think that there has to be something of a destination point even if that's not in the end where it all goes, where I can feel as an investor like you have really mapped out for me a good investment, not funding your idea. And I just, uh, that to me, I, especially in not only Boise, but in a market with a lot of first-time founders, I feel like that's always missing. Right. So let me ask this question. Is your perception that... Um, like if you mess up that pitch or if you miss those details, like, is there recourse for you with that investor? Yeah, I think there is. I mean, there's no one, I don't think any investor listen, is listening for a quote unquote perfect pitch. I think they're listening for a couple things. Um, and you can mess up all you want, but I think they're listening to see, you know, are you talking about product market fit or that at some point the market is going to see what, what you're creating is valuable. Two, you know, talk about the people. It doesn't have to be some giant team, but what are what are the backgrounds of the founders? And they don't have to have MBAs. I, you know, just I always like to talk to founders about distance traveled. Just so if you know, if you in any hard part about your life, where how far have you gotten from where you started? I think there are other things to talk about, but we're again you're assessing the people. Is the team fit? Is the founder fit right? And then you know, in the end, is the market opportunity large enough? And then in, all the way through is are these the, the same the right people to start that opportunity with my money? Right. This this is something that I heard, and the person who said it knew far more than I do about like the nature of investment and and venture and start and scaling startups. So I I feel like I can borrow that. But they said build something that a few people will love, that you can grow into something that a lot of people can love. And doing that is easier than building something that some people kind of like. It makes it impossible to expand that audience. But like a big key for that, 
a big aha moment for me when I heard that was like, oh, this has to go somewhere. Like, <laughs> right. you know, I can't like, okay, maybe I can like sell product A to market B like well enough to like pay the rent and, and like pay employees and, and achieve stability. But is that concept going to scale up? Right. Right. Yes. And, you know, and, and in the case of venture capitalists, right, sort of based on what you're describing and what we've talked about before, venture capitalists are, are looking for a much, di much bigger multiple on that kind of opportunity, right? Like they, yeah. want, they want you to be able to scale up 100x, 1000x. Um, and I think something that you kind of articulated is that angel investors obviously also want you to scale up sure. as, as big as you can be, yeah. but at the same time are um, going to maybe uh, go with their gut a little bit more yes. than than just trying to like crunch the numbers and and play the market sure. better than they could better better than they could do with the stock market. Venture capital as an inst as a source of institutional capital is a sort of a weird thing. I always kind of think about it like it's where's Waldo. Like it doesn't I think the the common perception of a quote unquote VC fund is that they invest incredibly early a ton of money and they either you know produce huge home runs uh, that go public or sold or they go bust. And I think that what's hard to figure out is what's hard to understand is the cyclicality of markets. Because you know if you look at a market uh, market cycle of eight years, I don't think that's let's call it eight years is on average a market cycle. In that market cycle, there's going to be boom and bust periods, right? So you have 08, you had the first tech bubble in mean, 2001 you had things like the coronavirus. It's hard to, venture capital doesn't necessarily have a mechanism to adjust for risk if something bad happens. What happens is, you know, there's no vehicle for that money just to come back. So what they're doing is, by and large, they're gonna change a little bit of their investing pattern. They're gonna either go really early, they're gonna, if they're into fund four or five with more capital, they're gonna start moving downstream. So in B rounds, C rounds, you don't actually know where they're gonna land. So going, a, but you can be sure that they're going to be either where the growth explosively on a, on a, in a general basis is happening in an industry or a variety of industries or where it's going to be. And so, you know, that's where founders, I think if you, you know, a pitch deck and I built a company and they just immediately think that's going to segue into, I need to get funded. I, I think that's dangerous in a market like Boise, where we don't have a proximity to a lot of that institutional capital. Right, right. That makes sense. I think fucking tech crunch, man. I swear to God, it's ruining people. Fucking tech crunch. Fucking tech right. Crunch. Right. I mean, I mean, a big pet peeve that I've developed over time, and I, I think you share this to some extent or another, but a lot of the media for entrepreneurship, for startups, software, but you know, also like CPG and, and some other things, a lot of the media is coming out of the Bay Area. Right. Sure. That's yeah. where a lot of the big exits are. That's a lot of where the big attention is. They've got Sand Hill Road, right? Boise, as far as I know, has no road that's known to have a lot of venture capitalists on it. No. <laughs> um, and so a lot of people like consume that media. They read the books, they listen to the podcasts, whatever. And, you know, or, or worse, they look up billionaires and like trace their steps backwards, trying to figure out how Jeff Bezos got to be the richest person alive. Right. 
um, which probably isn't a good way to unfold a strategy for oneself. Yeah, probably uh, not. Um, but a lot of the media comes out of those markets and, and that market is an anomaly. Like Silicon Valley is so much bigger in terms of venture capital money. The barrier to entry is so much different. You know, I mean, if you're going to start like a consumer facing company, like you're, you're going to build like a software product, like right. a social network or something. And you're not even planning on like trying to get revenue for that business until like your series B or series C, mm -hmm. then like this is not the market to do that in. Uh, yeah, no, it doesn't seem like that. And I, but I do think there's only a finite amount of founders, whether first time or multi exit that are able to pull off that type of model. So, you know, like a UGC player, those things that are users generating the content or the product. I think that in the end, whether it's consumer products or tech, or I think what you're ultimately trying to do in the beginning is get the flywheel spinning. And I think, you know, Bill Gurley talks a lot about the importance of doing unscalable shit. Sometimes you gotta, you gotta build the code yourself. You gotta make your own ice cream. There are there are very, very unsexy, unscalable parts at the beginning of building a business. Yeah. And I feel like until that flywheel is starting to spin, that that is, you know, a metric of if you have a flywheel that's starting to spin and you can tangibly tell an investor about why it's spinning in any in any particular category or, or uh, business, I think that's where you can really start talking about how to add capital, marry capital into the business to see how fast it can grow, accelerate. But I still think by and large, we don't have a lot of founders that are saying, where is this accelerating to? Right. Yeah. That's true. And I guess going back a second to the notion of product market fit, getting that flywheel spinning. Um, and I, I want to add a distinction mm -hmm. on on what I said about starting a, a consumer facing product. In, We're going to be wrong a lot like, in this talk. I yeah, promise you that. Of course, of course we are. But I, you know, I want to make the distinction, like if you need seed funding, if you need like a million dollar round of seed funding in order to get the flywheel spinning, yes. that is a problem Huge if problem. you're starting in the Boise market. But if you've got a very innovative idea or you've got like a great way to just like carve out a niche in a market that you could access really easily, yep. you know, like a classic example is like fraternities and sororities for dating apps. But well, and I feel like Crave is trying to turn to do that, is carve out that unique local market opportunity and then hope that they can scale it other places. Right. Like growing that group into like a larger group. And, and so like, if you can do unscalable things and get, and gets the activity that you want on like a shoestring budget, right. Or while bootstrapping and then like be able to like present this flywheel is spinning. Yep. This is our trajectory. Then surely that makes a more attractive investment offer. Yep. Think about it this way, organic velocity relative to the amount of money invested. So if the organic velocity or whatever metric you want to use, whether it's tech or CPG, um, is disproportionately higher than what was invested, then that is a great sign that you have a flywheel turning. Right. That, yeah, that, that makes sense. And, and like in the inverse perspective, yep. like if, if it took a ton of money just to barely get that flywheel turning, then... Like yeah. maybe that's an indication that adding more money isn't going to no. like change the game. Yeah, you can't you can't over innovate through product market fit. Like you, there, it either it either works or it doesn't. Um, you can be early, and I th you know a lot of people, and I, I think I tend to agree that being early is the same thing as being wrong. Right. Yeah. And I also think that 
you know, pioneers get slaughtered and settlers settle, you know, build being able to spot trends, at least in consumer products, I feel like the explosive growth is when you capture a trend correctly or you have a position in the trend. And I think, you know, when, when Lewis started Killer Creamery, I don't think he could have really thought about that someday people are just going to be indulgent on no sugar ice cream. But that's what happened. And he had a foot in the trend as it started. Now that's not, that doesn't pull, that doesn't mean you exit, but it's certainly, you have the winds, you have the wind at your side. Like it's, it's pushing you when, when even you're not able to go that fast. Right. And I feel like tech's kind of like that too. Yeah, I think so too. I, um, Surely you don't want to be too early. I mean, there were a lot of there were a lot of tech companies that came out in like 2010 to like 2012 that uh, that just were too early. And I, I mean, I'm sure it's been happening since the advent of the internet. Yeah, yeah. But you know, that's just something that I've tracked from my own frame of view. Um, that I saw tried again yep. later on with you know better technology or a more accessible market or like just a slightly bigger like starting market for that product um and they you know they take off and and get billion dollar valuations and you know um so i definitely do think there is something to being too early with your idea but something else and and this is something that i believe in and like have heard a lot of echoes about even though i struggle with it a lot personally but something else is that i think it's important to have ingenuity and to be able to change yourself in order to like rise to the challenge in front of you. And this, honestly, this is like also an adjacent topic to like talking about mental health. Yeah. Right. Right. Which and, is and entrepreneurship, yeah. Right. Which is something that we should talk a lot Absolutely. more about and, and something that I, I want to talk about within this really, really project as well. Yeah. But, um, but you know, simply like if you don't have experience running a thousand person company, and you're building a product that you expect to scale to that stage and you don't want to be cut out of it, then you just need to be prepared to like change yourself or to, to change your skill set and adapt in ways that you hadn't otherwise expected. And, you know, maybe sometimes that is a remedy for being too early, right? Flip your game, right? right? Yeah. Pivot. But it's also something that like, comes across all the time. I think it's relevant to the invest to the conversation about investment as well. Like when you bring venture capitalists or partners of any kind into the business, especially if they are more experienced than you, and this is something that I do have experience with, right. um, they're going to have expectations and needs and, and, and they're going to try to advise you to go in a certain direction. And it's kind of hard to do that coming out of, for, for one, coming out of like sort of the courting phase where you're just trying to be perfect, right? right? Totally. <laughs> but, you know, it also gets difficult. Like it feels like, for me, it's it's something where I've, I think I've put a lot of effort into rolling with those kinds of punches and like learning what I need to know. But every time there's another wave of like, you don't know enough about this yet. First, like my first reaction is to like try to push against that with confidence and then, and then it's like, okay, it's happening again, yeah. right? I need to learn a new thing. And I'm like, oh God, like another thing, another thing. You're kidding me, you know? But then 
but it's just it's consistently happened to me and it's something that i hear echoes about like through everything whether you're in silicon valley or boise or roanoke virginia right, right. like you have to be prepared to know you have to be prepared for change right change is going to happen to the organization to you to the expectations on you right and you know when it comes to investors like i think they're also like looking for people who are prepared to do that with them and be coachable i, I see you kind of like no 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 I, I, a i'm trying bit. to trying to like patch that all together i think you know what is a what is a perfect founder to an investor I, that uh, would depend on each particular investor i'm sure i i don't know i think that i guess you know bringing it back to boise i feel like what are some, if you want to go, what are some things where, I mean, I'm trying to think how to segue this. You know, honestly. You took me down that rabbit hole. Now I fucking don't know how to get out of it. Well, I think the, I think you asked a question right there <laughs> yeah. that, that uh, you know, I've asked myself and I think a lot of founders have asked themselves and probably asked other people as well. Like, what is the perfect founder to an investor? Mm, and mm -hmm. I've, I've gone down that road. And honestly, I think that that is a question that should probably be put to death in its sleep. It's <laughs> people hate my answer. Um, because I felt like I mean I didn't come from any fancy, you know, background. I didn't I I wasn't born with investors built into my life. Something that I had to go out and really focus on. And I think what I, founders hate when I say this too, but I what's a what you know, what's a perfect founder to an investor? And I think by and large the answer could that be is is the founder that I know. Right. And when, you know, I'm glad we do events uh, like the trailhead and, and BC.org, but oftentimes that is not a great way to build a good organic relationship with an investor prior. A lot of funds will say, you know, or at least they try to say, we like to get to know people for a year. Um, there's a lot of ways to meet investors to, and meet them credibly. And people hate when I say it, but that's when you're not selling anything. And you could do that by, you know, donating time at nonprofits. There's other networking events that you come off a lot more credible and build better, I think, organic relationships than just networking for VCs and, you know, and going to pitch nights and, and pitching in front of, you know, people in an audience. And I, but that also then says, when do you actually start raising capital? Do you start raising it when you need it? Or do you start raising it kind of in part as you're as you're starting to think about building the company i would argue that a founder that starts thinking about it before as they're thinking of their idea is has a lot better chance of being funded than someone who kind of reactively goes and pitches for audiences and there's also those companies though that have you noticed that all they do is pitch yeah <laughs> they yeah. just go like well, one event to event and event and they just pitch for twenty thousand dollars ten thousand dollars well, for a lot of companies, that's like their skill. That's what like totally. what they're starting off with, which honestly, like for a CEO, like maybe is not a, a bad skill to start with. Um, I want to uh, just taking it back a little bit to like the concept of perfect or, or like being a perfect founder, being a, a perfectly eligible for investment. You know, I I think that that is kind of a road to ruin for entrepreneurs in a, in a lot of ways. Hmm. I think. I think that you want to generally be like a good opportunity for the people you're talking to. I think that's a big distinction because there are a lot of there are a lot of signals that sort of the sage advice 
suggests that entrepreneurs put off about their business and about their concept. And if you have a concept of like what a perfect pitch or a perfect investment opportunity looks like, and your company does not meet that in reality, which it, almost sure always does. Right. Yeah. Sure. Surely that that very rarely happens. You know, it doesn't yeah. happen often enough that one could say it's likely that it would happen to them. You know, yeah. if you if you feel that you need to be the perfect pitch, you're setting yourself up for like disappointment in yourself. You're setting yourself up for an, feeling a need to inflate whatever you have going on into something that's not and could very well like kill one of those first presentations by being self-aggrandizing without setting your valuation way too high. Like they're just dumb, right. very avoidable mistakes. And not realizing that yeah. like those investors might actually be looking at like a year of conversations and relationships That's a great point. before they're actually going to cut you that check. So like, you want to be perfect, like right when you meet the first investor that you can, but you're not. <laughs> you're not. You know, and if you have an opportunity that's going to, I'm not, I'm not talking about like throwing salesmanship aside, like do, do what you can, but like also, you know, I, I just think that there's a, a big problem in, in like coming at it from the perspective of like, I have a perfect pitch and not getting funding and getting sort of feelings of like, well, maybe I'm not perfect coming after that. And also sort of like entitlement feelings of like, I had a perfect fit. I had a perfect pitch. You should have funded me. Yeah. I think the, the narrative of perfect pitching and practicing to the pitch and all that stuff, I feel like, I feel like it's it, what gets lost in that is discussing the opportunity, if that makes sense. Um, when we're perfectly pitching you, I'm, I'm literally a, such a slimy salesman to, to someone who is going to be a partner in the business, right? If you're talking and interviewing another potential co-founder, you're going to ask a lot more questions and, and talk a lot more subjects than just kind of the, the high bullet points and where you're going to go. Like, and I feel like if invest, if founders started to do that with investors and just have a conversation, I think that throw away that they're, you're asking them for money or you want them, you're, you're asking a partner to join the business. And I would love to see every company start talking more honestly like that and and getting away from the notion of this pitch and we put them up on stage you know you know i am so anti group pitches and you know and all those you don't things. like that I hate them i don't think that they're effective i think that if you're in the audience of those you've already you've always got some asshole that raises his hand and asks a bunch of bad you know questions to be that guy I just think that they're so dangerous and it, if as we get through this podcast and i can impart a little bit more knowledge frame control is essential in selling information, right? And so if you're going up there um, and you're talking to, you know, it's hard enough to pitch well or to discuss an, and, and discuss an opportunity well with one investor, let alone a crowd full of them, right? And so I guess what I would love to see more if and we talk about attracting more capital to the ecosystem is to start talking to investors as if they're going to be partners because they are. And, and to have honest details discussions about where it's going to, where the opportunity is, where the risk is. I mean, I remember telling founders, if I'm work, if they work with me or and I'm advising them, you're going to pitch by leading with the risk always. And they were like, oh, we, I don't want to do that. That gets negative. And what you don't realize is that it's, it's contrarian to be honest now <laughs> about pitching 
and about the, uh, the deal. You don't think the investor is, if even if you don't, he buys and or he or she buys on the first presentation. I'm gonna I'm gonna stop saying pitch. I hate it. The first presentation. Um, I think the more impactful metric is can you get can you continue to get funding again on the next milestone from the same person? Can you keep the same investors intrigued enough to at least if they can't write check sizes big enough that they'll introduce you to more people because they're that excited about what you're doing right. and how you're doing it? Yeah, and what I hear from that is like you're you're building within that human being that investor self hand a self hand sort of account of your ability to meet projections. Yeah. Right. Yes. And that's like all the difference between like having a family friend who's an investor, I think, and like just yeah. having a good relationship with somebody with an investor that you met in, you know, the last couple of years. Um, at least that's what I'm picking up from. No, here. no, no. Totally. So I guess if we're talking about where, where, where can we grow in the ecosystem? We're not going to, you know, we, we don't have proximity to the big institutional capital. So why not right now start treating investors in these conversations, not like pitches, but start, you know, really discussing opportunities with people. And I just, you know, in my, I just don't always feel like you can do that on a stage. So what would you, so you're, to be clear, you are anti-group pitches. Anti. You don't like them. No. Okay. Hate them. So if you were a first time founder in Boise and you you felt that you should start raising capital for your company, mm -hmm. what would you do? What would I do? And and I'm gonna add some color to the conundrum there because yeah, yeah. because like we talked about like Trailhead and, and SBDC and, and all of these other organizations kind of being central, like a central point that sort of collect and capture people who are interested in entrepreneurship for the first time. Yeah. And then they sort of like plug those people into a flow. But a lot of those organizations are advocating for uh, pitch competitions yep. and and group pitches, and so like if that seems like the if those are the avenues that are being presented to you, and you you know don't happen to know any investors personally, then what would you do? <laughs> yeah, I guess I could tell you what I what I think the right thing to do is, and what the most tactical thing to do is. What would I personally do? I would be. I would not go to group pitches. I would be, but I would go to the audience of other people's and I would sit there and I would network that way. I would do everything I can to build offline relationships with investors. And again, I like to think that I would not, if my company all of a sudden had explosive growth, going to equity may not be my first move. I may think about other vehicles to do that until I have, I can present a story that's so good that I can get investors to come to me. And I've been able to do that before, but it takes a minute and it doesn't, most founders come into fundraising very reactively. And I'm, I'm not positive that everyone knows what they're doing when they're doing that. And again, I think that's where just having, trying to help people think like investors is a, is a lot better skill set than graphic designers and really fancy, well done pitch decks. You see, I thought I had asked you a question that would cause you to have to go back on that and say, like, Never. well, just bite the bullet and do the group pitches. But you have clever ideas for, for what to do in that situation. Yep. And I commend you.
So we, we've identified that our community is one where you're probably not just going to get funded off of a pitch deck, right? right? Like yep. you probably need to show more traction in Boise than some other places. And, you know, maybe that's a way in which we're growing, right? Maybe that's something that could change over time or, or that barrier to entry could be lowered just a little bit. But if we could be magically bestowed with all of the, you know, proportionate like metrics and figures that Silicon Valley sees when it comes to startups and investment, would we want that? Would that help us? Or are we better off like becoming a place where for the long haul you find deep traction before you even try to get funding? Yeah. Is that a good articulation of that question? I think so. I think, it, yeah, um, as the way I'm hearing it, and it's, if I'm hearing it correctly, it's the same way I think about when I read, you know, the different kind of local initiatives about the ecosystem, the conversations of the ecosystem. I hear a lot about there's not enough money. I hear on the other side that there's not a, a crop of outlying kind of investable companies, but what I have not heard yet is what's the goal? Where's the destination point? To your point, um, if we just had the fair, if we just had the money ferry, the the success ferry come and tap everybody on the shoulders, do we want to be Silicon Valley? And my response would be no. That there, there's got to be something about the DNA of this area that produces a particular sound. I was thinking about it in terms of music genres, like what is our particular sound here? Not necessarily what what VCs do we want to come to town or how many big unicorn exits we want. Is it, is it a software sound? It sounds like it. We've been relatively successful with a couple billion dollar or roughly exits in the technology space. We have a decent one in the consumer product space. But I don't, I don't want to live here if it's Silicon Valley. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I mean, <laughs> Silicon Valley is uh, a hectic place to live, right? We, yeah, in, we, in, 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 a lot of, in a lot of ways. I mean, taking that question to a place where it's about producing positive outcomes for the people that live here and for the people that start businesses here and for the people that invest in those businesses. You know, I mean, are we trying to create unicorns in Boise? Like, would we be better off figuring out how to like manufacture unicorn outcomes here? Or would we be better off like building more sustainable or more deeper product market fit companies in the beginning before they get investment and then propagating that sort of model forward is is a big part of the question. I think I think it also has a big impact. Like so Trailhead in particular has some stated goals and one of their stated goals is to increase employment in the area predicated on the success of startup businesses that that grow and, and hire a lot of people. And so like if we were looking at that goal as being like a net benefit to society and and the people that are starting those businesses and the people that invest in them. Are we better off with building unicorns or building bootstrappers? I personally, I feel like we're better off build, building bootstrappers. Again, I, I think the way I like to think about building businesses are those that are able to survive in boom and bust cycles with or without a ton of outside capital. Which is funny coming from predominantly uh, CPG investments because those are all 
among the most spendy in terms of cash burned. But I think it's a more important question to sort of, and I think that's part of what this is about, is being able to not only just, you know, us two idiots waxing intellectual about a whole bunch of things, but really having the detailed conversations with local stakeholders that ask them that question. You know, is the is stage.o's agenda lined up with the trailheads? Where do those two work together? Right. What does, you know... And I want to hear that from TM too, same. from trailhead. Yeah. What does, why do we do, what, what does the deal flow report really do? Um, what's the intention of that? How does this all parlay into each other? And in what is the kind of the defined goal of what the ecosystem wants to be or feels like it can be? Um, I always think that this would be, and I'm trying my, you know, trying really hard with Killer Creamery to make this a consumer product city because I think it's crazy that it's not. Hmm. Proximity to Albertsons. There's there's a lot of, I mean, uh, of the large businesses that we have here, arguably a lot of them are like food and and CPG oriented. Yeah. Yeah, no. yeah. So I'm I'm kind of. It sounds like it sounds like you have. It sounds like I, I've got my vision for what I think this would be. Right. Um, but I feel like what is, you know, just having a discussion about what's the combined vision, the overall, I, I you know, I think when I first read kind of 50 to the A, um, part of me struck a bit critical. Um, I don't know why, but I guess in, in some ways that's a, a perfectly good goal to have to try to have 50 companies pass an A round. But I, yeah, again, I think this is a conversation with local stakeholders, local founders, local stakeholders that we can really talk about this from their perspective. Because I think even what we discussed a couple of days ago, I don't think every founder truly really knows the incentivized sort of motivations and how each investor likes to see it or what their model looks like. And I think it's really easy for a new fund like Stage.O to come in and for a lot of people to sort of take shots at it and not really understand exactly what those guys are trying to do. I would love to have that opportunity to talk to them about that because I think there's a lot of people cheering too that they that it would be right. That it would be sort of this, you know, renaissance of technology meeting venture capital in some really unique way in a studio model. It's a studio model. Did they look at the ecosystem, look at the trends, look at what we're producing and the people in it and say we're going to use a studio model because it's the best because we don't, uh, we feel like we can help build them better. Again, those questions to me would be super important to ask. I think so too. And I, I'm looking forward to having all sorts of guests Same. on here from the perspective of, you know, from, from biased perspectives of like actually running those funds to also like maybe people from the city or from BVAP who can speak to statistics and like, like, what outcomes do these create for other people and also people from out of Boise like there really really isn't a Boise no. podcast necessarily even though this is the frame that we're looking at but other places around the country this is a relevant conversation you know I there's there's something at the heart of of the question that I asked that is deeply profound to me or at least deeply relevant to my own existence and reason for being here you know I'm a software entrepreneur right? I'm a tech entrepreneur and I live, you know, a 90 minute flight away from like the biggest place for tech entrepreneurship in the United States. Mm -hmm. Why am I not there? You know, 
uh, and honestly, like it's a nuanced answer for me. Like if you, if somebody were to put a gun to my head and ask point blank, like, would you be better off having started your companies in San Francisco or, or Sunnyvale or San Jose? I would probably say yes. Right. Yeah. And what, what keeps me here I mean, surely, like, I want to create the best outcomes for myself as I can. But also, what has kept me here is this uptick that we've gotten, all of this momentum and energy that's being put into the startup ecosystem here in Boise, I think creates an opportunity for those of us who are part of it to create something better to create like a version of a positive outcome that best suits us. And that's what I'm still here for, right? Like that's what makes the difference to me. And you know, it's, it's obviously a subjective calculation. This is also my home. This is where my family is, but, um, but I stay here because I believe that we can create something that's more, meant to be <laughs> that we can create something truly good out of the result of our efforts. And when we sort of see these scattered actions or um, when we see some of the sort of more negative sides of growth or or some of the setbacks that the entrepreneurial community in Boise is facing right now, it also like deeply concerns me and hurts me like in fear that we won't be deliberate about what we do with our growth. I'm afraid that we won't like take this growth and turn it into something that's truly best for all of us. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, my wife and I, when we moved here, I mean, uh, for context, I've lived in San Francisco and in Manhattan and um, moved to Sun Valley to run a small fund when my wife and I were making the decision to leave there, we looked at, we, we, we were fortunate enough to have the opportunity to pretty basically go anywhere. We went to Salt Lake City. We went, we, we really did some research and went to different cities. And what we found, what I kind of came back to was, I want to, when I, you know, I'd like to, I think there's something happening in Boise. And it's not that it's done or that it's even close to done, but there's an energy and excitement here that attracted me because there was a lot of work to do. I'd rather come into and add value to something that is very much growing and on the way up than something that is sort of plateaued and on the way down. And that was, that was really drawing to us here. I also wanted to move to Boise to run, to start a fund. And my experience since living here, even though I had money committed was to what's best for what I thought was the ultimate goal. What brings, what brings Boise what I think, or, you know, what we all want, which is more investor and more entrepreneur expertise and, and more people working and living here. And it, it became sort of clear, at least to me, that the best way to do that was to, to, to link up with a, with a company and, get, and go after exits first. Because the amount of exits, um, you know, those will mint new millionaires and younger and people that are have now made money building or being a part of building companies. And I know that there's a network effect to that. And I think we have, you know, with the cradle point exit, I think that's starting to happen. But I sort of made that choice between take money that's committed <laughs> and build a fund or come in and, and really lean in and build an exit. And to me, it sounded like 
what we felt what we needed was more exits and uh, so that's kind of why i decided to lean in with killer creamery but yeah it's it goes back to the question what do we where do we want to go i felt like all roads if i can go out and use a company that's local and bring out outside capital from other states and other investors and other expertise and at least some consumer products consumer products is a kingmaker sport I've got a couple kingmakers and I thought bringing them and building a bridge to them to Boise was beneficial to us all. Um, I don't know if that answered it, but that's, yeah, it was a, we, we, we thought about this ad nauseum, but better to be part of something to me that's growing. You can still make a giant impact here. And uh, I think there's a lot of good stuff to come. I just don't know in what order everybody wants to do it. Right. What do, what do you think is some of the diversity of opinion about where Boise is headed, what we're becoming? Like, what, what do you think people are going to disagree with when they hear this? I think that, again, as we just as we started this conversation, the disagreement, I think, is going to come by, you know, do we need more more companies doing, you know, putting up bigger metrics and then investment? Do we need investment to start that? And I think the reality of it is we aren't we don't have investment to start that. We don't have, you know, we don't have a ton of funds and institutional capital that just wants to move here and focus their money at Boise, which is why Stage Idaho is so interesting. And I don't think they have had an ability, at least to me, to really sit down and walk through the nuances of what they're doing and why they're doing it. We have enough outlier companies. I think we have enough founders who are now who I think by nature of living in a city, a city like Boise that doesn't have proximity to institutional capital, they're scrappy. And I, you know, they're going to make it through boom and bust cycles. How do we support them? But it, if we, if all of a sudden every VC in town moved here, what would happen? I don't know. I, I don't think it would be good. For me, I'm, I've, I've spent a lot of time thinking about, you know, I mean, we have to get, we have to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps somewhere, right? Like we have to get wind in our sails somehow. And I think for me, I've, I've spent a lot of time thinking about like, what do we have going on that we could just focus on? Like what culture could we curate that would produce like a higher percentage of businesses that produce good outcomes that would then like attract, you know, more investment or, or create invest create you know millionaires who can become yeah. investors right and i th i think we have opportunities to do that if we're deliberate about it yeah. you know like one thing that i'm pretty big about is technical co-foundership right like you've mm -hmm. got like a business person who wants to start a startup you've got a you know a, a capable enough developer who also wants to start a startup they agree fundamentally on the vision of the startup. They've spent time together, like working on the concept and, and have grown rapport with each other, you know, and, and like that, those people, those kinds of partnerships are most likely to succeed. And I, you know, as somebody who has developed a lot of skills so that he can do a lot of this stuff on his own, I've got to say like having a partner, having a partner alone makes a huge difference, right? Um, but also as somebody who is running a software development consultancy and, and has seen probably a thousand people enter the, enter the sphere of wanting to like build a software product and, and build a company predicated off of that. I, I can say that like 
there are so many times when you it doesn't feel real you don't want to move forward you think maybe first about like whether or not you're going to be able to pay your mortgage while you're bootstrapping and like courting investors that you're not even going to like give a presentation yeah. to in 6 months and i think that like that pairing of people who have the same vision i think is likely to produce is more likely to produce a good outcome um, than like a, a solo founder. And, you know, I think that's a relationship that we can foster. Like, I think that we could go into universities and like sell business students on the idea of like pairing with a technical co-founder. And we can go into like the CS departments at, at Boise State and elsewhere. And we can go into like the code camps and, and the meetups and like sell developers on the idea of pairing with a business person who can like materially help them advance their cause. Like if we were the best city in the country at pairing capable people together to build new companies, then I think a lot of these other things would follow. But, you know, agreeing on that as a community, uh, agreeing on that yeah. goal and, and getting to it, is it, you know? Yeah. What does, you know, do is the, it's so interesting because I think you're going to get, we'll get so many different answers, but I think is, 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 are we, do we want to be in the business of keeping bad businesses going to save the jobs or are we want to be in the business of producing exits? And I feel like fundamentally in a lot of like emerging ecosystems, I think that's the partially the problem that they're struggling with is what part of this is economic development? And what part of this is like down and dirty capitalism and which one in the end is better for an ecosystem? Do you need both? I'm not a fan. I'm, I'm not in the business. I don't feel like keeping bad businesses fun, running is good. Um, I, don't, I don't. I think that there is a, a lot more downside to that than upside. But the way that, you know, just the trailhead private public private partnerships, like a lot of ways, those are some of the catalysts to a successful, you know, ecosystem because it's kind of where all roads go through where you learn where kind of money intersects with ideas and, and people like it, it's it definitely serves a purpose but i always feel like what at the stage we're in would be awesome if we had a finishing school you know a finishing a, school you know like where that we're good at really articulating and building the ideas and putting them into decks and sort of starting the flywheel but do we do we have is there that entity or is that group of resources that can help someone take what they've built conceptually and even like they've already actionalized some of it, but then put that qualitative or that, you know, that really quantitative M and A side to it and help focus opportunities that will be, that could be giant, really, really uh, lucrative businesses. We do. We're really good at supporting the ideas. Haven't seen us be really good at really finishing and quantitating the exit and how we get there. And maybe that's just the stage we're in, but I'll be interested to talk to people about that. Yeah. I'm more interested to talk to these to local stakeholders and see what the really, really is for them and kind of where this all needs to go. Because right now I do see that kind of polarization of frustrated founder and fatigued investor. And that's, that's not good. Right. Do you think that's, do you think that's happening disproportionately here compared to other places in the country? No, I think probably uh, the economy is so hard to read right now. Um, I would say that after every kind of bus cycle, you're going to get fatigue. Because people are like, holy smokes, like I could not even realize I started getting that risky with my portfolio. But I think that the more founders that are pitching deals that are, <laughs> that the valuations are 100x their revenue, 
leads to the fatigue. I think that if you really think about multi-exit founders and the, the way they're thinking about their opportunities versus sort of a first-time founder, again, you don't know what you don't know, but the differences are vast in how much quantitative side of it they do. Um, how much more focus they have on really good managers as opposed to, you know, in the beginning of building a business, especially in Boise, you kind of go grab onto whoever you can that you think they can get you funding. Right. Right. And oh, so, yeah, I can relate to that. Yeah. You go try to control every optic. And uh, and I don't I don't I, I don't know that that's the worst thing if you're finding good people, but you're there's no emphasis. I shouldn't say that. It doesn't seem to me that there's a lot of emphasis on building good managers and building good infrastructure and building good teams. It's like we'll get funded and then we'll fix all that shit. Right. And to me, I don't think that that will work. Yeah. Yeah. And in a lot of ways, it does seem like a lot of the momentum and focus is on like that, you know, building a pitch deck and getting that initial funding event. Um, and you're saying you, you've been saying this in a lot of different ways, but you're saying like, you know, being like setting your sights on actually running the company, setting your sights on actually like getting product market fit and actually getting the outcomes that investors need to see or creating the outcomes that make your company a good investment opportunity. Like, I don't know, something something I think about and, and talk to people about a lot is like, how do you know that you're, you know, how do you know that your company is a better investment opportunity than like the stock market in general? And I know it's a different like investment paradigm to look at investing in stocks versus investing in venture. But like, just as a thought, like, like why would somebody put their money into your company when, you know, Tesla stock just like tripled over the last four months, right? Like, why should they spend that money on you? And how can you create that to be like just a, you know, a, a no-brainer pitch? Yeah. Or not not no-brainer pitch, no-brainer investment opportunity. And I think, I think that does lie in like product market fit and like preparing yourself to be a good manager. And I'm not even saying that I'm there. Like that's... That like getting to what the point that I've described is something that like I'm aspiring to yeah. in in one of my companies. But I wanted to, you know, at least for me personally, the, the I guess the impact I always want to leave um, is that developing founders into CEOs and executives, the actual maturation is where I'm going to spend a lot of my time focused because I feel like even post funding that is where all the risk becomes for both founding team, founder, and for investor is I can invest in the founder, but is that founder the right executive? Um, and I, it's hard to go through hyper growth where a company doubles from you know, a million in sales and all of a sudden they're at 20 million in sales because venture dollars work when they have the growth playbooks. Like they can do that. Like it doesn't, um, but the mental health side effects of that you know, like the there's so many there's so many problems I feel that are starting to be solved if you start to focus on development of people. And I think if we can focus on equal parts learning how to raise money and equal parts developing people, I think we'll be better off. So what can people expect from the next really really? I think that uh, if they were if people were interested enough to hear us, you know, ramble and, and just, you know, go back and forth on, on different topics, I think this was really just to set it up. I think what, what we want to do and I think what people can expect is if people are willing to come join us in here and, and really 
drop the sales pitch, right? Right. <laughs> like, this isn't a- No grandstanding. We don't do grandstanding, like no promo. Like I think what we are really trying to get at is a really good conversation about very nuanced ideas, very nuanced motivations, really kind of shedding more light into- you know, the path of a fund manager and, and having being just like a founder, having to go raise their own money. Right. Um, and and sort of give context to what investors go through as well, bridge the gap. And then again, I want to be awesome to leave after, um, you know, four or five of these and say, we all feel that maybe there's a little bit more agreed upon direction of the ecosystem and not just saying we want to have a bunch of exits, but some really like what makes the soul of Boise, the, you know, what, what's our particular sound yeah. relative to Austin and Boulder and San Francisco and Silicon Valley, like, what's our sound going to sound like? Right, right. I, I, like the, I like the idea of having that as a goal and bringing on more people and more perspectives and ideas to build consensus yeah. about that. You know, like that's something that I would be explore if it wasn't for the coronavirus then i'd probably be getting you know coffee uh a few times a week with just random people out of the community talking about things like that anyway um so doing that in recorded fashion sounds good to me too yeah same i also you know something that i also want to be able to draw out in in future episodes of the really really is i want to get like the real story like it's it's i've seen you know i've seen sort of things happen in the world and then like the media write articles yeah. about them or somebody gives like a an interview and like the you know uh, an arc of the story is drawn and you know that's great like it's it's cool to hear about like how southwest airlines came into being and, yeah. and like some of their challenges right. and stuff but like i i also really want to like push all that aside for this like there are plenty of venues to go out and tell like the best story yeah. of your company history and what i really want to learn is like okay where did you screw up like where did that good idea come from and how many bad ideas did you have before then and like what was your thought process as you were developing good ideas to replace that and you know i talking about mental health too like i think Looking back over my career and and honestly, even back into the last week at one of my companies yeah. right now, um, there are a lot of dark moments where it feels like, how could we possibly go on from this? And then, you know, you stick with it and something kind of happens. Like you, you continue to put your minds toward the best outcomes and like take like a broader scope view and in a lot of cases situations that seem completely dire turn out to be kind of a blip in yeah. in the background but like you know i i want to like draw out those stories and draw out like what was that like in the moment and and how you know what were the flaws in thinking that like contribute to that yeah i think entrepreneurship by and large is a lot more akin to the aggregate of marginal gains than blitzscaling. You know, it takes, you know, there's a, one of my favorite sayings was that um, behind every overnight success you saw, you'll see somebody that did it for 10 years at least. Right. And I think that taking that approach to it, I, I don't want this to be a highlight of someone's one success rather right. than really just a deep discussion about everything it took to get here and, and where, you know, I don't, to, to talk with people that have no need to tell you about what worked but the driving need for coming in here is to tell you what didn't right and what they could have done different um and from a mental health perspective you know like a that is something that i think a topic that very practically even investors don't think about enough 
because uh, you are essentially investing in racehorses uh, who all of us by and large are messed up. <laughs> that's part of what draws you to the lifestyle. The contrarian part of it, the risk-taking part of it is very averse nine to five. But part of that comes with the crazy. Right. I always like to ask investors or talk to people about, well, I'm trying to figure out what crazy I'm actually investing into. Because if I can understand what crazy there is, I can talk about how to help them. Yeah. And to give them, you know, I always say like an NFL team invest in, you know, they pay Tom Brady, what, a year, but he has everything. They're taking care of the product. And in the early stage of companies, the product is the people. So I'd like to, to have a top, have a conversation about more about those types of things. Cause founders, we sell shit all the time <laughs> and we sell it to ourselves. Yeah. And there isn't necessarily a vehicle for people to have good, honest com conversations about what isn't good. Cause you don't want it to affect your next pitch. Right. Or to get out, you know, that you have, that you're struggling with stuff. Well, we're all trying to create things that uh, all founders are trying to create something that wouldn't have otherwise existed. And there's, and against long odds, and there is something crazy about that yeah. that I think is, is in, in large part common and inherent to a lot of entrepreneurs and founders. I won't say all, some people no. sound like, like the Chipotle founder sounds like he pretty much like knew what he was going to do, popped yeah. into it, got a loan from his dad and made it happen. But <laughs> yeah, I always say that the, the, one of the reasons why you'll always hear me use so many music references is that what's really, I always wanted to be a rock star and then a producer. And, uh, and what I, what I've been able to do in entrepreneurship has kind of filled that, but what there isn't a lot of differences than from a startup band in a garage to a, a company that exits. Like I've always felt like they kind of, the same path. You know, that's funny. I, I, so I have a lot of friends who are like in bands and I'll, I'll comment on like new bands that come out. And I, I just remember like watching a band the other week and I asked the person I was with, uh, like, do you think their business strategy is trying to like get in on like the, uh, hotel lobby market? And <laughs> they're like, you know, like, I don't think they know what their business strategy is, but it is a lot like, you know, in, in, in large part, it can be kind of akin to that. I think something I'm also really excited about after we get this sort of first episode out there and see what people think is I'm excited to hear, like, who do people want to hear from? Mm -hmm. Right? Like who does the community want to say, like, should be, should bring their voice into this conversation? Like who do you want to hear they're really, really about, mm -hmm. right? Um, and I think, I think, I think that's going to be like very different than what we expect to see. And and I'm excited to, I'm excited to see what that looks like. Yep, I think we don't need a. And it just clicked in my head like what we don't. What I like is that this isn't again no grandstanding, and there isn't. We don't need to bring guests on that are overwhelmingly going to support the ecosystem and the way that it's been raised and where we should be thankful for it. It's about truly is about. What's the next kind of marginal gain we need to go after? How do we, you know, how do we bring in proper capitalization and outside investors and, and new founders like myself and people that are moving here? Like, how are we inclusive to them? And it'll be excited to see where this all turns, uh, where this all leads. And that's one of the reasons why we moved here. It's uh, like I tell my wife all the time, like, this is never boring, <laughs> never, ever boring. It's always crazy stuff, crazy stories and crazy people.